we're here this morning to continue putting on the whole armor of God. Uh, I pray that what is, uh, is revealed to us this morning, I know what was revealed to me these last 30, 40 hours of studying has been uh, eye-opening uh, because I've not done this before, but, uh, but I pray that what the Spirit reveals here today will be exactly what we need to live our lives before the Lord in this crazy world. One of the questions that we've got to ask ourselves is, are we, are we diligently in uh, reading and studying uh, the Word? Uh, do we believe and do we trust what God has to say? Uh, and, and in doing so, uh, I think we can find ourselves uh, living that life that God has prepared for us uh, because He can correct us and He can put, a, put us back on a path to spiritual growth and service in the, the local body. So the, the key that I get out of all of this is that, you know, we don't change God's Word. God's Word is to change us. So that's, that's why we, we diligently spend our time uh, you know, studying and learning what uh, the Spirit has to say. So as we begin our study this morning, we need to uh, look into uh, ourselves. We need to do a self-examination. Remember, our bodies are a spirit. Uh, they are temples of the Holy Spirit. Uh, remember, the priests did not go into the temples in the Old Testament with sin. If they did, they had to be drugged out of there with a rope because they were dead. Uh, so the, it, it's the same thing for us, but, you know, the Lord's not going to strike us dead. Uh, but we do need to check to see if there's any sin in, in, our, in our lives that, that we have not thought about. Uh, it was a nice morning. Uh, nobody gave us any problems driving from Bernie to Fredericksburg today, so... So far, you know, the, the, driving, uh, you know the, the driving issues weren't a problem, but we still need to self-examine for the week and to make sure that we haven't forgotten anything and make sure there is no sin in our temples. Uh, so now is the time. We'll use First uh, 1 John 1, nine, a confession of known sins. That will bring us back into fellowship, actually with the entire uh, Trinity, but especially the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So I'll give you a couple of seconds and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll go to prayer. Father, it is indeed a pleasure to be here this morning uh, to worship you and to worship with uh, our fellow like-minded uh, citizens of the, of the coming kingdom. Uh, I am appreciative of those who are here to listen to what the Spirit has to say this morning. We pray uh, that it would be uh, efficacious for our lives. Uh, and while we are praying, Father, we ask for travel mercies for our pastor and his family. Uh, I pray for uh, Doug Gray as he presents your message this morning in the second class. And we pray for all of those who aren't with us today that, uh, that you would give them uh, safe travels, uh, safe health, uh, fulfill their needs, comfort them and whatever their needs are, and bring them back to this local body. Uh, I pray for uh, your Holy Spirit to guide the things that you would have me to say this morning, that, that in all things you would be glorified. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, this is my first attempt to, uh, to take on the study of an epistle, uh, considerably different than just taking on a, uh, a chapter in, in one of the books or one of the epistles. Uh, it, uh, there's more doctrines, there's more application uh, as you learn about the, the study of that book in its entirety. We've, maybe most of you, I know I've studied Second Peter, but... Uh, but I wanted to look at First Peter to see how and why Peter wrote these 
two epistles. And, we'll, and we, I wanted to start with the first one instead of the second one this time to see exactly what Peter was up to. Uh, the theme or subject of today's uh, message is uh, Christian suffering in the cause of uh, Christ and the cause for Christ. The New Testament writers made it you know, abundantly clear that, the, uh, that those who follow after the Lord will, not would, but will endure hardship. Uh, Philippians 1.29 uh, reminds us that for, uh, and it says as follows, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Uh, in these letters, uh, obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit, persecution, pain, and suffering would continue to abound in the world since the ruler of this world is not exactly your loving and kind monarch. Uh, he is the leader of the angelic conflict. Uh, in, in the past, he desired to be higher than the Most High, and I think he still desires that. Uh, he and his minions, they hate God and they hate his creation. And they especially hate us because we are following after the Lord. We are his disciples. So if you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to know and always remember that you have an enemy. That being said, uh, the Holy Spirit uh, inspired these writers to identify the problems in the Christian life and in the body of Christ. And they wrote these doctrines and principles and promises to establish us in our foundation of thinking uh, and taught us how to apply these truths in a world that is hostile to God. Do you think the world is hostile to God these days? Man, I just read the headlines this morning. It's, it, never, it never ends and it gets worse every morning. But anyway, so let's take a look at the, uh, the, the, inter, the, the initial part of Peter's introduction here. Uh, Peter's audience, I believe, asked the question, uh, if you've not read First Peter, is, it's about Christian suffering, as I said. And I think they asked the question, uh, why are we suffering and persecuted, and how do we endure this persecution? I believe Peter's answer to that question is based on what Peter experienced and, and what he saw and what he heard from the Lord uh, is regarding the persecution and suffering that he had seen during his lifetime up to this point. Uh, but I want to go back to John 9, 1, and I think this might answer this question as to why. Uh, John 1 reads, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, uh, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered and said, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Uh, this, is, this is the answer to persecuted believers today in Asia Minor as well as for us today. Uh, suffering is permitted in order that the grace of God might be displayed. Uh, as Pastor Garcia said in, in the John 6 study, uh, it's all about God. We're here because of His great mercy, not anything that we have done. So we've got to keep our eyes on Him and not, again, on ourselves. So this sets the stage for our study today uh, for the introduction, and it will also set the stage for our future study as I, uh, as I try to get into further uh, chapters of, of 1 Peter and, and uh, later on. Uh, the uh, introductory points that we're going to try and cover, I think I can cover all of them today. Uh, we're going to look at the author. Again, we, we believe that to be Peter, the recipients, or those in Asia Minor, these uh, 
believing Jews. Uh, where did Peter write this letter from? Uh, when did he write it? Uh, what was the, the occasion or the purpose of writing, or, or, or why was the letter written, I should say? The structure of the letter, the, some notable characteristics with regard to each of the, uh, the chapter breaks, uh, Peter's purpose, and then Peter's message in writing the letter. So let's get started with Peter. So the, the uh, 1 Peter 1.1 identifies uh, the Apostle Peter as the author. Uh, Peter does not say that he's the chief apostle, he's the leader of the apostle, he's not the head apostle. He just simply identifies himself as the apostle in 1 Peter 1.1. What was Peter's background? Hardworking businessman, hardworking fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, as a businessman, he would have had language skills, communication skills, uh, business skills uh, to deal with the Jews and the Greeks who were his uh, buyers and, and the merchants in that Sea of Galilee area. Uh, I believe he was fluent in uh, Greek and Aramaic as we, uh, as we continue to look at uh, what he has written. Uh, I also come to the conclusion that he was skilled in Hebrew Bible. Uh, one of the reasons I believe that he was skilled in Hebrew Bible, obviously that's all in the Bible that they had, but he makes reference to it in, his, uh, in both of his epistles. Uh, let, let, here's a couple of the... Um, there's several of references to Hebrew Bible in 2 and 1 Peter. Uh, 2 Peter 1.4, he refers to the exceedingly great and precious promises. Uh, 2, in 2 Peter 1.19, he refers to the prophetic word. Uh, 1 Peter 1.10 and 20, he refers to the salvation the prophets inquired of and searched for. Uh, 2 Peter 3.9, uh, he, he reminds us that the Lord is not slow concerning his promises. And he gets us from reading the book of Habakkuk. Uh, and finally, in 2 Peter 3.5, Peter writes that the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water. So I believe looking at these particular verses, Peter, Peter knew his Hebrew Bible. Uh, and after three years of training by the Lord, uh, I believe that... Uh, that what he was learning uh, would be uh, significant in his understanding of what he was going to write and what he was going to teach over the next uh, 30 years. So what else do we know about Peter? Well, we know that <coughs> Simon Peter and his brother Andrew were the first uh, of the disciples called in uh, Matthew uh, 4.18. Uh, in John 1.42, the Lord calls him Cephas, uh, Aramaic meaning stone. Uh, but here he identifies himself just as Peter. Uh, Petros, P-E-T-R-O-S, the small stone or the pebble. And this is what Jesus called him in Matthew 16, 18, or 19, where he calls him Peter, the little stone. And we'll look at this name a little bit later on. Peter's Hebrew name is Simon. And Simon means to hear and to obey. In John 15, 16, Jesus reminds these disciples that he, Jesus, is the one who called them, not the other way around. And Peter is the first disciple called. And why is that? I believe Jesus had a leadership role for Peter, as we will see, as we have learned as we study the New Testament. He already had a background for leadership. We know in John uh, 21 uh, that Peter owned at least a couple of boats. Uh, he employed others to fish for him and with him. Uh, and, and again, we said as a, as a businessman, he sold his 
he sold his fish from the Sea of Galilee to the local Greek and Hebrew buyers. Uh, but his human and leadership skills were adequate, but they were going to have to be developed uh, basically over the next three years with the Lord when, when the Lord was, uh, was ministering on the earth. Uh, but he needed to be prepared to be qualified to lead the church in growth and in perseverance during times of adversity and persecution. I was reading uh, A.T. Robertson's, I don't know if I have that up here, don't. A.T. Robertson's uh, word pictures in the New Testament. And you say, man, you must have been really bored. Uh, no, but there's, there's, there's good information in these old, this is from 1933. Uh, and I was reading in the Tyndale New Testament commentaries by Alan Stibbs, 1959. Uh, back when our theologians really had some rock-solid foundation, they, they weren't uh, interested in this progressive theology. But in these commentaries, you can find some controversial, even back then you could find controversial statements to whether or not Peter was the original author of these two epistles. Uh, one of the theologians uh, that is quoted in, uh, I believe it's in Robertson's Word Pictures, uh, his name is F.W. Bear. Uh, does not believe that Peter is the true author. And a quote from him in his commentary on 1 Peter, he states that Peter was an illiterate fisherman and couldn't have written these epistles if he had, been to, if he had lived to be 100 years old. Now, you know, uh, I'm not the brightest bulb in the box. Uh, I don't know the languages. This guy knew the languages, but I tend to take the Bible literally. Uh, so I'm not going to question his hermeneutics. I just don't understand how he came to this conclusion. Uh, but in all fairness, he was not the only one who didn't believe Peter was uh, the apostle who wrote this letter. Uh, others make reference to Acts 4.13. If you remember uh, in Acts 4.13, Peter and John were witnesses before the Sanhedrin. Uh, and at the end of their witnessing, after they kicked them out of their little group of interrogators, uh, they had marveled that Peter and John uh, had such uh, eloquence, and they were, and and they believed and understood them to be just uneducated and untrained, uh, that they could be able to speak so clearly with regard to what Scripture had to say. Uh, but I think this was the attitude of all Judeans towards Galileans during that period of time. Uh, if you look at Dwight Pentecost's. Uh, book on the words and works of Jesus Christ, he quotes David Cook's, uh, I'm sorry, David Smith's book, The Days of His Flesh, regarding the Judeans and the Galileans. And you could read this quote up here, but, but let me just sort of uh, go through it very quickly. It says, the Galileans were despised by the proud Judeans. Judea was the home of orthodoxy, the shrine of Israel's sacred institution. Jerusalem, the temple, the Sanhedrin, the great teachers, and she boasted of these distinctions and disdained, disdained the, the boorish folk of Galilee. I think you can see in just this short quote the hatred the religious leaders had for the Judeans, I mean the, uh, the Galileans, especially Peter. Uh, and then if you go back to the time that the Lord was on the earth, you can see the hatred that they had for him because he was a Galilean carpenter who claimed to be Messiah, who claimed to be God. Can you imagine? 
So is it possible for a fisherman who is called unlearned in Acts 4.13 by these Pharisees to be able to speak and write in, in advance or, or very good Greek? Uh, there are several ways one could respond to this. The first uh, thing that you would say is that Peter was called unlearned, but he wasn't called or designated as illiterate. Uh, being called unlearned simply means that he was not educated in these rabbinical schools of the Judeans. Uh, because of Hellenization, uh, Peter did speak Greek as a second language. And again, as a, as a businessman, he needed to know Greek to deal with the, uh, the Greek culture in his area. And then since Peter had been preaching and serving in missions for over 30 years since the death of uh, our Lord, uh, he probably had grown in his understanding of, of the language during his uh, teaching ministry. So just because Peter wasn't educated in, in these rabbinical schools doesn't mean that we should doubt Peter as the author, uh, nor should we doubt Peter's authorship because he was able to use the Greek language uh, in a more advanced manner. What, are, what is some of the scriptural evidence of Peter's authorship? Well, I'm, I'm just going to go right to 1 Peter 5.1 uh, and, and, uh, and look at that. Uh, in 1 Peter 5.1, Peter says that he is a witness of the <laughs> sufferings of Christ. And also in 1 Peter 5.1, it says he was a partaker, that is, he saw the glory that will be revealed. Uh, the second part of this uh, refers to uh, when he was a witness at the mount, on the Mount of Transfiguration to the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. Uh, that's in Matthew 17, 2. Uh, and he will also refer to the transfiguration in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. So uh, it seems to me the scriptural evidence points to the fact that, you know, that, that, the, that Peter was a witness to the Lord on the earth, and that, and that gives him a cre a credibility. Uh, and Dan Wallace's notes on 1 Peter uh, 1 at Bible.org uh, he gives us some external evidence of Peter's authorship. And it seems to be affirmed by uh, these uh, Christian theologians who believed Peter is the author. Uh, the quote there is that uh, Irenaeus, however, does quote from Peter uh, and regards it as a genuine, genuine work of Peter. Uh, from the last third of the second century on, uh, this letter, which is First Peter, is frequently regarded as Petron. Uh, it's cited by Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, Theophilus of Antioch, and others. So concluding this section, uh, we see uh, the Lord had given uh, Simon a new name, Peter, the Petros, the small stone, uh, as uh, he would reiterate that name in Matthew 16, 18. Peter would be instrumental in the building of the church and the, and the advance that is, on the, uh, that is founded on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who is the rock, which is the Petros, the large stone that is the church's foundation. Uh, Peter was not untrained. He was an educated fisherman. Uh, God in the person of Jesus Christ for three years trained him, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, he gave them the, him the ability to uh, not only to proclaim the Lord's words, but to write what the Lord had to say in, the new t in his epistles. So what can we learn from this authorship? Uh, we can learn that uh, we're here for a purpose, just like Peter was here for a purpose. He was a small stone who was going to build on the big stone. 
Uh, we're here to serve the Lord and to glorify Him. Uh, we're here to exhort others in this local body. Uh, and just like Peter, the Lord has chosen us and He has empowered us through His Holy Spirit to, to serve Him. Uh, who are the recipients? In 1 Peter uh, 1 1, we see uh, Peter identifying the recipients as the pilgrims of the, dias of the diaspora. Uh, pilgrims in the, is the Greek uh, noun peripademos, meaning sojourner, but the controversial word in this, uh, in this passage here is diaspora. Uh, it's the Greek noun meaning scattered. And it's defined uh, meaning scattered in order to preserve and celebrate uh, the culture and the traditions of the homeland. Uh, it's a technical term and almost always means the same, time, same thing every time it's used. Uh, technical definitions or technical terms, uh, according to the Cambridge Library, uh, these are just terms that are used to introduce vocabulary. And vocabulary is used to make whatever is about to follow that passage, clear, succinct, unambiguous. So Peter is trying to tell you that the diaspora is the scattered Jews among the Gentiles in the Asia Minor area. Uh, James 1.1, 1, 1. Uh, if you look at that, it addresses, uh, James addresses his writers as the recipients, that is, they are the 12 tribes scattered abroad. Uh, in John 7.35, the, the, John records the uh, response of the crowd to Jesus with regard to what he was saying regarding uh, where he was going. And they asked, uh, is, he, is he going to the dispersion among the Greeks? Again, dispersion, diaspora. Uh, and of course, Moses wrote in Deuteronomy uh, 28 and in Deuteronomy 4 regarding Israel's uh, blessings and cursings uh, as far as disobedience goes. Uh, Deuteronomy 28 says, you shall be plucked. That's the Hebrew verb nasak, meaning torn away from the land and scattered among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. First uh, Peter, uh, uh, I'm sorry, and Deuteronomy 4.27 reads, in disobedience the Lord will scatter you among the peoples. Uh, the, the Hebrew verb is, uh, is putz here in, uh, it's kind of funny looking in English, but it, it, it's pronounced putz, which means to be cast abroad, uh, and that is the definition of scattered in the Hebrew. First uh, Peter 1.1 1, 1 also addresses the elect who are scattered. Uh, both words are significant, and they point to uh, a Jewish audience. The elect is a common self-designation uh, in Judaism. Uh, they are the nation which God chose through Abraham to fulfill uh, God's plan. Uh, so Jews outside the land of Israel have always been referred to as the diaspora, that is, aliens in other nations. So based on these scriptural accounts, uh, I conclude Peter is writing this first letter to Jewish believers only. Are there Gentiles amongst these Jewish believers in the Asia Minor area? Very, very obviously there are, because when you go to 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, uh, Peter addresses them. Uh, because in 2 Peter 1.1 1, 1, it says, 
he addresses all those who have obtained a like and precious faith, and these are all the believers in the Asia Minor region. But, uh, but I'm, I'm trying to get across here, I believe 1 Peter is written to scattered Jewish believers. Uh, 1 Peter 2.9 sort of emphasizes the fact that he is talking to fellow Jews. Uh, 1 Peter 2.9 addresses these readers as a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Uh, we re- need to remember that the church is not a nation. His own special people are those regenerate Jews, the true remnant of Israel, as is uh, discussed in Rome, Romans 11.2. Exodus 19.6 says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. So these identities are of regenerate Israel, uh, and, but they do have application, of course, to all believers, as Peter will tell us in, in 2 Peter. Uh, Paul reminds us in Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, you're all one in Christ. And, uh, and one more reason I believe Peter is writing to these uh, scattered Jews uh, in 1 Peter 4.3, he writes, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles. If he was writing to Gentiles, why would he say that? So, again, Peter is writing to, I believe he's writing to these believing Jews in 1 Peter. Uh, I know some will disagree with me, but that's the best I can do, not being a, a student of, of the languages uh, as, as the pastor and others are. Uh, and one final point is that Peter never addresses the church, the ecclesia, uh, the, uh, a body, uh, a gathering in this letter. But he will sort of refer to it when we get into this uh, next section of our study. Uh, <clears throat> so where did he write this letter from? Uh, this is probably a little more controversial. Uh, I, I know uh, others that I have talked to uh, don't agree with me on this, but at least it's not a physical disagreement. It's just verbal. Uh, so 1 Peter 5.13, it says, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. So we're at the end of the chapter. We are in the uh, the benediction of the chapter. So Peter's already greeted these believers in the beginning, so, but now we have another greeting, but it's not from Peter. It's from she. Now, who is she? Uh, she, uh, this is what is used here. We're, we're quoting from the, uh, the King James, the new, I'm sorry, from the New King James or the NAS, NASB or the uh, ASV, and they translate it as she. If you get to the, the King James Version, it translates she as the church that is. And that's what it is inferring. But it, if you get into the, to the lexicon, it doesn't say ecclesia. It says she defined as the church that is. Now, stay with me on this. Uh, and this is what I'm going to hang my hat on with regard to, I believe Peter is in Babylon. Uh, so uh, she in the Greek is, is the uh, Greek, uh, it's, a, it's a pronoun. 
uh, hey, meaning the, the one, or these. Hey is a definite article also. Uh, it's in the nominative case, singular, and it's in the feminine. Hey is properly a demonstrative pronoun. And all this means to say that when you have a, a, a demonstrative pronoun like this, it becomes the subject of a verb. And the verb in this case is greet. So it is she greets you. She being the church greets the church, which is at Babylon, greets you in Asia Minor. And that's what this verse is all about. I'm not going to get real deep into it. But just to let you know, this, the, the word church or the, the Greek ecclesia is not used like it is in Romans 16.5 uh, and Colossians 4.15, where it actually uses, you know, greet the church that is in their house or greet the church that is in his house. Their ecclesia is used, but not used here. So she then is implied to be the church that is that is a feminine demonstrative pronoun. Uh, and I, I, I know this is probably a little deeper than you wanted this morning, but it's a little wake up something, I guess. That, that, that's the best I've got for you. But, uh, but you just need to understand that uh, it is uh, these Babylon Jewish believers who are greeting these Asia Minor Jewish believers at the end of 1 Peter 5. Uh, also, when you look at the definition of the word uh, Babylon in the Greek lexicon, uh, it is pronounced or translated as Babylon. Uh, Babylon in the definition in the lexicon is, is defined as the city between the Euphrates and Mesopotamia, that is the land between the rivers, uh, the other river being the, the Tigris. So this tends to lead me to believe that this is where, where Peter is writing from. Uh, Babylon is not a code word. Uh, there's no reference to Rome in either of, uh, uh, of Peter's epistles. Uh, Paul's ministry, uh, I'm sorry, Babylon is not a code word for Rome. Uh, Peter doesn't mention Rome in, in, in either of these epistles. Uh, Paul's ministry in the city of Rome is recorded in Acts 28, uh, 17 through 30. And when he is there in, in his fourth missionary journey, he does not mention Peter being in Rome. Um, so there's no New Testament evidence that I have read, uh, and there's no other evidence uh, giving historical proof that Peter was in Rome. It, it, there's uh, a lot of supposition of the early church fathers that believe that he was there, but still no proof. Uh, J. Vernon McGee writes in Volume 5 of his books through the Bible, uh, there are those that think Babylon is... Uh, is used here in a symbolic manner or in a metaphorical sense, uh, and that Peter really meant Rome. However, there is no reason for him to use it in a, a metaphorical sense. Uh, Peter was an apostle who did not write in a symbolic manner, such as we find used by John in the book of Revelation. Uh, Peter writes very literally. He writes very practically. I believe that if he had meant Rome, he would have said Rome. So also there's no solid evidence, uh, textual or archaeological, that Peter died in Rome. Uh, we know one thing, that Peter uh, was executed by Nero. Uh, he was crucified upside down, as was told 
by the Lord in Matthew 21, 18, when he said, most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. He spoke this signifying by what death he would glorify God. Uh, the thinking that Peter was in Rome is uh, oriented around Peter's tropaeon that's, that was in Rome uh, during the early part of the uh, second century. Uh, during that time, Christian pilgrims went to see this tropaeon at this, uh, uh, there was a cemetery in, in Rome at that time, and they, and they believed that's where Peter was uh, executed and that's where he was buried. But the word tropaeon uh, is not a tomb. Uh, it is actually defined as something as a trophy or it is something like a war memorial or a cenotaph. That is, it, it's a, a cenotaph is an empty grave. Uh, the, the, the Roman word for tomb is sepultura. That sounds very similar to sepulcher, as we know. Uh, but this spot was, again, uh, uh, in early times thought to be where Peter was actually buried. But in the 50s, they dug this place up and found that there was no tomb. There were no bones, no grave. It was just as it was. It was a memorial, strictly. Uh, so there's no proof documentation that, of Peter being in Rome. And again, Paul never mentions Peter being in Rome when he wrote those prison epistles. Uh, why would Peter be in Babylon? Well, there are still a large number of Jews uh, in the Babylon area, and they remained there after the 586 B.C. captivity. We remember that approximately 50,000 Jews returned to the land when Cyrus uh, freed them and allowed them to go after their 70 years of captivity. Uh, Claudius reigned in Rome uh, from 31 to 54 A.D., and during his rule, he expelled the Jews from Rome. Uh, we see Aquila and Priscilla coming down to the church in Corinth and in Acts 18.2, and because of the persecution of Christians in Rome by Nero in 54 to 68 AD, many of the Jewish believers headed into the Asia Minor area, and as far back as the Eastern Roman province in Babylon. So we have a lot of Jews that are still in Babylon. Uh, if you notice the uh, the, the map of, a, of the Asia Minor area. This is, these were Paul's missionary journeys. And you can see there is some overlap between Peter's uh, writing to the Asia Minor Jews and, of course, Paul's uh, ministry to the Gentiles uh, in Asia Minor as far west as, uh, of course, Spain. Uh, if you'll notice, when Peter is writing to these uh, groups of believers in Asia Minor, uh, let's see if this is a little bit better. You can see from the arrows that uh, they point from east to west. Uh, he says he is writing to Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All of these would tend to lead you to believe that if you can see where the, the, uh, the star of Israel is, that's where I believe Peter is. And this is what the, the historical writings tend to point to is that when you write to someone, you write from where you are to where you're addressing. So if you look at how these, these groups of people are arranged, he's writing to these people from a westerly place. So this tends to lead me to believe, again, that he is in 
in Babylon. Uh, Josephus, uh, a, a prominent Jewish historian, I know we've quoted from him before, uh, again, extra-biblical information. Uh, he wrote uh, the works of Josephus, The Antiquity of the Jews. The purpose of that writing was to prove that the Jews had more historical preference than did the Greeks in all of history. Uh, this background, uh, to say that in book 15 of this Antiquity of the Jews, uh, Josephus writes that there were a large number of Jews in Babylon during the time of Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great died in 4 BC, so how does this, how does this correlate to where we are uh, in 60 AD? Well, it's just letting you know that there historically is a large number of Jews still in that Mesopotamia area. Uh, another uh, historical reference is the uh, Jewish Virtual Library, and it records that there were 800,000 to 1.2 million Jews still in that area, even up to the time that Islam came in and started taking over the Mesopotamian region. I think that was, what, six to 900 A.D., something like that, if you remember. I don't exactly remember, but somewhere several centuries after Peter was writing. And when I was reading Josephus, there's one other little tidbit of information. It says the adjoining city to Babylon is, listen close, Baghdad, B-A-G-D-A-T. Does that sound familiar? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? I thought that was, that was an eye-opener. So, again, uh, Peter doesn't write symbolically. I believe he's very literal. He's very practical. He's a fisherman. He doesn't, he doesn't get uh, complicated. So I believe he was in Babylon as he wrote this, as he wrote this uh, letter, these two letters, as a matter of fact. Uh, what was the date of the writing? Uh, most historical evidence points to the fact that it was written sometime between 62 and 64 A.D., uh, but before his death in A.D. 67. As I said earlier, uh, he's writing now 30 years after the death of Christ. Uh, Paul's fourth missionary journey and imprisonment occurred 60 to 62 A.D. when he was imprisoned in Rome. Paul never, uh, Paul doesn't, again, Paul doesn't mention uh, Peter in any of these epistles. Uh, but the point is, is that Paul doesn't make mention uh, of Peter during the 60 to 62 A.D. time frame. Uh, also, uh, in Paul's ministry, you remember uh, Sylvanus was with Paul during his prison, during his missionary journeys, I think starting in the second one. We know Sylvanus as Silas. So Silas was with Paul, and at the end of the, uh, and, and when this, the fourth missionary journey where Paul was in prison, uh, Silas left, uh, after that imprisonment, Silas left Paul's service to go into the service with Peter because Peter was a missionary or he was an apostle to the Jews. And Silas being a Jew, Silas, uh, uh, his, his Sylvanus was just his Roman name, but, but he took up uh, working with Peter as uh, service to Jewish believers scattered uh, in the Asia Minor region. Uh, so again, Peter's writing after Paul's last missionary journey uh, in AD 62. So somewhere 62 to 64 AD is a good time of his writing. Why did he write these epistles? Uh, if you think about it, uh, 
almost all the New Testament epistles have uh, a common theme of writing to those believers uh, who are undergoing uh, persecution and testing and trials, suffering and false teaching. As the title of today's lesson mentions, these dispersed, regenerate Jews were suffering from the hands not only of Rome, but they were suffering from the unbelieving Judaizers that were in the area. Paul experienced the same thing. Uh, These believers were in dire need of encouragement. Uh, Under this impression, the the oppression and the injustices from these Gentiles and legalistic Jews, Uh, Peter is just, he's encouraging them. He says, you need to fulfill your calling. Uh, And what was their calling? Well, the Abrahamic covenant, uh, God promised that through Abraham, the Abraham seed, the world would be blessed. Uh, The Jewish role in God's history was for the Jews to send God's word to the four corners of the earth. So even in their dispersion, their role doesn't change. So this, is, uh, so this is Peter's encouragement is to stand firm uh, while you're in Turkey or in Babylon or where you are. Stand firm in what you have, been, what you have believed in. So Peter addressed their suffering, but he emphasized the hope in time of trial. Uh, Peter tried to emphasize uh, the doctrines of how these believers are, uh, are to use to stand in the time of trial. Uh, I think Peter likely had access, of course, to Paul's writings, and I think he had access to James's letters, uh, and and he also could relate uh, to these believers' sufferings, as he too had suffered under the hands of the Judaizers. Uh, remember, I said in Acts four, Peter and John were uh, witnesses before the Sanhedrin. Uh, they had been confronted by the priest, uh, the commander of the temple guard, the Sadducees, and they were being basically uh, ridiculed, uh, and they were being told to stop preaching Jesus. Uh, Again, arrested, threatened, mourned. In Acts 5, obviously that didn't work. They were right back at Solomon's portico doing the very same thing again. They were arrested again. This time the angel of the Lord got them out out of prison, and they went right back to preaching. But the third time they were arrested, what happened? Peter And the disciples who were with him, not only were they put in prison, but this time they were beaten. And they were told to stop preaching uh, Jesus as the Christ. But in Acts 12, uh, one of the things we read is that uh, Herod Agrippa had executed uh, James, the brother of John. And he had arrested Peter and was ready to uh, do the same thing to him. But again, an angel of the Lord had released Peter from prison. All this to say is that Peter knew about persecution and suffering. He was beaten, he was imprisoned, and and he knew what they were experiencing. But what he's trying to tell them and what he would not do is he would not stop preaching Jesus as the Christ. He wanted them to stand for the truth uh, in what they had learned from him and and probably from Paul as well. Uh, As Peter told the priests and the Sadducees in Acts 4.19, and I'm just going to paraphrase this. It says, your commands contradict God's commands, so we will speak what God has revealed. So, uh, so Peter is basically saying that neither the government nor religious institutions 
can override God's laws. Uh, keep that in mind. Uh, we all need to keep that in mind as we walk through this world because these institutions are coming after us right now to make sure that, well, now we have the, the new marriage law, right? So what's next? Well, maybe we don't want to ask that question, but it's coming. All right, uh, what is the structure of First Peter? Well, it's, it's a five-part structure that includes a, a salutation, uh, speaks of the salvation of the believer, the submission of the believer, uh, suffering of the believer, and then there is the benediction, which we, uh, we referred to just a little bit earlier. Don't worry, I'm not going to do all this today. I don't have enough time. I only have 14 minutes. Uh, what are the unique characteristics of Peter's epistle? Uh, in the first two chapters, you have the belief in the holiness of the, uh, of the believer. Uh, in uh, 2 through 3, you see the behavior of the believer and how that behavior of the believer is to harmonize with those around him, which would include the government uh, and whoever they work for, uh, as well as fellow believers. And then in the third characteristics in uh, chapter 3 through 5, you will see uh, it will talk about the believer's suffering and what kind of humility, true or false humility, that you're supposed to have as a believer when you are experiencing suffering because people can see through fake humility. Anyway, uh, what was the purpose of Peter's letter? Uh, his purpose was, again, to encourage these scattered Jews and offer hope uh, in their times of trials and suffering. Uh, remember, he calls them the elect. Uh, not only does that mean they are elect of God as Jews, but they are also elect to emphasize the reality and the security of their salvation. And that's what the belief in holiness is about. Uh, he affirms their sanctification and the power of the Holy Spirit, as well as their life in Christ. And he reminds them of the grace and the peace they have because of the suffering of Christ foremost on their behalf. So their confidence is to be in their eternal life, and they are to be secure in their position in Christ. So Peter's writing style, as you read through this, you'll see that he is showing great care and concern for his brethren in times of suffering. Uh, so he's trying to put the divine perspective uh, on what they are experiencing and to encourage them not to waver uh, in their faith. Uh, and, and we have to think of this uh, for ourselves because we go back and we look at James 1, and what does he say? He says, count it all joy, you know, when you encounter trials and suffering. Uh, Peter also reminds these believers that they're not the only ones uh, going through suffering. Uh, their fellow Christians were suffering throughout the Roman provinces, and they too must recognize God's suffering not as a punishment, but as a motivation to grow in their spiritual life. So 2 Peter 3.18, if you remember, is Peter says it's a command, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So um, in spiritual growth, you know, we walk with our eyes on the Lord. Uh, we are not to be conformed to this world's thinking, but to be conformed to his thinking, as is in uh, Romans 12.2. Uh, Peter wanted these believers, again, as they deal with others, not to develop or harbor any bitterness towards their masters or the government or even fellow believers. Uh, their goal was to turn to their dependence on and their confidence in the, the Lord. Um, 
Peter also teaches these believers that their conduct before unbelievers is to be above reproach. Uh, They live in a hostile environment, but they are still to be obedient and respectful to the pagan government as well as their masters. Uh, Paul wrote about uh, the godly conduct of believers in 1 Thessalonians uh, 1, 6 through 8. when he is speaking uh, to these believers at the church at Thessalonica, and he says, And you became followers of us and the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples. And that's, that's the key word here, is that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, your faith towards God has, tur- has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. Their lives were witnesses in two major regions. And that's what Peter is trying to get a call- across to these folks is that you're in suffering, you're persecution, but your life still has to be a witness because it is efficacious in the Lord's plan for their lives as well as for the history of the local area. Uh, Peter also wrote uh, of this very same uh, concept in 2 Peter uh, 2, 11 through 17. It says, submit yourselves uh, to the, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. I'm not sure that's happening today. Uh, but the, and the praise of those who do right, for such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And that's going to be a challenge today. Uh, and as we remember, God wor- God's word trumps man's words. No pun intended. Uh, in today's society, men mock God. Uh, they love murder, slander, all forms of sexual immorality and degeneracy. Uh, as a Christian, you are in, in their way because your life in Christ pricks their conscience. So they're going to come after you in every, every manner possible, uh, whether it's locally or whether it's through governments. So how do we live? Well, we're, we're to live a life that leaves uh, no door open to question uh, our integrity. And, and, and that's what Peter's trying to get across to these folks, is that you have to live correctly before the Lord. <laughs> I want you to look at the scriptural account of, of Abraham's purchase of the cave of Machpelah in, uh, in Genesis 23, 9 through 19. Uh, and I'll paraphrase this. You can look at it uh, later on, but I, I think you'll get the gist of this as I speak through it. Remember, Abraham, uh, Sarah has died. Uh, Abraham is negotiating with the Canaanites for land and a cave to bury Sarah. He is specifically negotiating with Ephron the Hittite for the, this, this property that he has. Uh, Ephron has feigned to give Abraham this land and the cave for nothing. Abraham would not accept anything from the Canaanites for nothing. Uh, if you remember when he rescued Lot from, uh, from the, the raiders, that when the king of Sodom came to offer Abraham 
goods and all of this, that Abraham would not take anything from the king of Sodom. Uh, but continuing with this, this negotiating for this property, Abraham, so when Ephron did give a price, it was this ridiculously high price, thinking that Abraham wouldn't buy it. But Abraham did not negotiate. He bought the property for this exceedingly high price. They made the contract, and he owned the land. Abraham was not going to give any cause for anyone to question his integrity from the family of Ephron the Hittite, or from his descendants, or from the Canaanite group as a whole. They were not going to, to see if Abraham negotiated unfairly. And this would be Abraham's witness in the land of Canaan, because he is showing his worship of the one true God to these pagan worshipers in the land of Canaan. So, uh, and, uh, and one more thing as far as uh, integrity goes. Uh, if you remember the pastor was teaching in 1 Samuel with regard to Samuel going before the people when they wanted a king. And the first thing that Samuel asked is, is there anything that any wrongdoing that I have done? Uh, have I uh, been a, a, a poor judge of administering my duties over Israel? And all the people agreed that he had not. So then Samuel lays the hammer down on what God has to say about what they've done. Uh, they, they, they agreed he had not done anything wrong. So therefore, Samuel's integrity was, was solid, and he was able to give them God's word directly, as rough as it was. Uh, they had to hear it, and they had no excuse for not believing what the Lord had to say through, through, uh, through Samuel. So, uh, Again, they, they, they couldn't blame Samuel for disobeying God. So we must remember our priority is to honor God and answer to Him. Uh, and to get them to focus on their position in Christ. I think uh, Peter could easily relate to what they, were, they should be focused on. Uh, if you remember Matthew 14, uh, 28 through 31 is the account of Peter walking on the water. So when he had his eyes on the Lord, he could walk on the water. But when he focused on the problem, which was the waves, he started to sink. So when he took his eyes off of the, when he kept his eyes on the solution in life, he did well. When he took his eyes off the Lord, he got wet. And that's what, and, and that's what happens when uh, we don't stand firm in what we are, uh, what we have believed. Uh, I'm not sure I can finish the rest of this today. Uh, I will finish it the next time I am with you. Uh, in, this in these closing comments, just let me say this. Uh, when the local body has, uh, suffers, uh, when we have problems, uh, we need to step up to encourage one another. Uh, encouragement comes when we in this local body exercise those spiritual gifts in meeting the needs of others, and we've all been given one or more spiritual gifts. Uh, in 1 Peter uh, 4.10, he writes, as each one has received a gift, uh, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Uh, I think the Lord's going to hold each of us accountable for not using these gifts. 
Uh, just like uh, in Matthew 25, 15, he speaks to Israel regarding the talents that he's given them. Uh, but the application as far as Matthew 25, 15 is to us and using the talents that he has given us, he's going to hold us accountable for those. Uh, why are these gifts important in time? Uh, a, a couple of specific points here. Uh, these gifts are for your spiritual service as well as for your spiritual growth. Uh, your spiritual gifts also magnify the effectiveness and the unity of this local body in God's plan. Uh, they're a blessing to others, and, and, and this is what I've come to learn about the use of spiritual gifts. When we are functioning together, this man who stands in this pulpit here, Alex Garcia, it makes his teaching even more efficacious for you and for all of those who are listening to him online. So, so keep that in mind with, with the use of your spiritual gifts and uh, remember God can use you. He used Peter. You know, Peter failed the Lord, you know. Did Peter recover? Yes. Uh, are we going to fail the Lord? Well, yeah. Uh, do we recover? Well, that's up to us, isn't it? But, but the Lord can use you. He uses broken people for His purposes. All throughout the Bible, you see how much He could use anyone to fulfill His plan for, for His history. Uh, I think of Proverbs 11.25. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. I can't help but think that that being generous with your spiritual gifts and your spiritual talents will, will lead to encouraging others and actually returning blessings back to you. So it's it's sort of uh, it's, it's almost a tit for tat, not really, but our desire is to encourage others with our gifts, and therefore they can encourage you with their gifts, and it just goes back and forth. So again, preparing ourselves uh, to serve, uh, I believe Romans 12.2 is the foundation for that, is to not be conformed to this world, but be uh, transformed by the renewing of your minds. Uh, then you can step up to the challenges of life. Uh, with your spiritual gifts so that this local body can be edified as well as to grow and to learn more and more and to be able to stand as the world does not like us. Just like I said in the beginning, you have an enemy. Uh, If you are here or listening uh, online, uh, these things that I've talked about today will not have any spiritual consequence for you. Uh, If you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, uh, faith alone in Christ alone, uh, these things have no value to you. Uh, I can only say today is the day of salvation. Uh, John 14, 6 says, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, No one comes to the Father except through the Son. The only thing that gets in the way of unbelief is our own self-righteousness. the works that, that you try to do to get to heaven, God doesn't, he doesn't see them as efficacious. There's only one work that will get you to heaven, and that is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And you believe that he died for you, that he was buried for you, and that he was raised on the third day. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he is waiting for you to make that decision to believe in him that you might have life eternal. Salvation is simple. It's a free gift. Uh, 
You need to remember that you believe. Why believe? Because you will spend eternity somewhere. We know where we're going to spend eternity. The unbeliever, you will spend eternity somewhere. Where will that eternity be? Will it be with the Lord or will it be forever separated uh, from His presence? How long is forever? Uh, in Texas, we call that a mighty long time. Today's the day of salvation. Acts 16.33, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Not might, not anything else. It's a guarantee. You believe in Him, you will be saved. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for your word today. Uh, we pray that what we have, uh, we have heard from uh, the reading and the studying of your word will, will benefit us uh, in the, this day and in this time and in this life as we see the, uh, Satan uh, working overtime to uh, bring and establish his, uh, his kingdom, but we know that that will, be, that will perish uh, in great fire one day. But we will be with you forever, uh, enjoy you forever. Uh, as David wrote in the Psalms, that uh, at your right hand, there are pleasures forever. And uh, so we look forward to that day where we are with you. Uh, I thank you for this group of people here, Father. Bless them as they go about their day. Uh, and may we all return here to, uh, to grow in your word. In Christ's name, amen.